Welcome to Gov Actually, the podcast about how government works. How it actually works. I'm Dan Tangerlini, president of Seamless Docs Federal, and this is the FedScoop Radio Network. And I'm Danny Werfel from the Boston Consulting Group. We launched this pod to try to get beyond the personalities and the politics. Right. We want to talk about how things actually get done in the government, the people who do it, and the challenges they face. So let's talk. All right, Danny, we are back with another uh, pandemic issue of Gov Actually. And we have um, another really, really complicated late-breaking issue that uh, we have to look at from the lens of the, the Gov Actually perspective. And, and this is the, the clearly obvious and heartfelt response to the murder of George Floyd in Minneapolis and, and the, the, just the awakening sense that the, um, the issue of, of race relations and race dialogue in, in the United States needs, needs, a, needs further effort. It needs to be progressed. Uh, it, it needs to be a minimum reset and, and, and frankly recognized. Um, that discussion has to happen and it, it's happening on the streets and it has to happen um, everywhere. So we're going to have it here. We're going to try to do it here. We're going to try to do it here. And I want to say, like, I think this has happened a couple of times on the podcast where we go into an issue that hits you both personally, but you also want to think about it through this more professional or kind of lens of, of, of our roles in government and our roles now. So before we, we, we go into the you know, kind of the government angle on this. Just want to share personal reflection of how how heartbreaking uh, the situation is. It's always been heartbreaking. It's the, the, the part of the heartbreak is that it's not new. It's something that's all too familiar, but it feels like this particular moment the the video of George Floyd, something broke in a lot of people's hearts and minds and something different is happening. And I know for me personally, I feel a different sense of, of tragedy, but in some, and I think former President Obama captured it well in his town hall, there is kind of a sense of at the same time that, that something like this drains your optimism about society, about people, about where we're going as a country, the reaction to it also has replenished a lot of that optimism in terms of seeing the effect that it's had on people around the country and people around the world. Um, now there's a lot of complicated elements in the response with respect to the the police and and impact on protesters but so so it's a very complicated issue but before we got into the kind of the government angle i just wanted to share a personal reflection of how how heartbreaking it is and also how it's inspired me to think about how can i be a better ally to people that feel the the impact of racism in a very direct way something that i have never felt but want to think about how I can be an ally for that. 
Uh, I, I, I appreciate those comments, Danny. I, I think I also need to point out that I am not a person who identifies themselves as a person of color. Um, I, I therefore can only speak from a perspective based on my experience and, and clearly limited and, um, uh, and from, from my perspective, which is one of, of alliance, but still, you know, to be perfectly honest, ignorance. And so I think part of this is uh, an issue of learning. I think both of us should um, try to enter this discussion with an awareness of our privilege and our awareness of our own uh, limited experience and, and frankly, continue to seek dialogue from and with folks who have more experience and more to offer. And so I, I wanna caveat everything that follows from, from that point that we um, are, are, are bringing to the discussion our, our deep felt sense of, of alliance and, and our, our, our desire to try to engage in the communication from a heartfelt and open-minded perspective. Yeah, yeah, and it just seems like it's important to talk about it. I, I think your caveats are right, uh, absolutely right, but it, it shouldn't prevent us from, from talking about it. And maybe, maybe we'll get feedback on it and we'll learn from it, from the conversation that we're about to have. Um, hopefully people will find it um, helpful to the dialogue and hopefully somewhat novel because as you and I talked offline about it, and, and how do we talk about this in the construct of our, of our podcast? I was thinking about this concept of the public's trust in government or citizen trust in government. And at, a, at an early uh, age in my professional career, when I was working in government, I started to kind of understand the, the importance of, of this as an issue that in what we do as a government, there, there has to be kind of an integrity of approach. There has to be a, an adoption of values that in many ways are at the highest possible level of fidelity. We, we have to take on a, a, a level of ethics that, um, that, that's higher than, than they otherwise would be if we were not in government for a variety of different reasons, um, in part because the public entrusts uh, government officials to be stewards of funds, of authorities, uh, but also programs don't, you know, federal activities and government activities just aren't as effective if the, if the trust in the government is compromised. So there's a whole different reasons to do this. And one of the things that struck me as this unfolds, and in particular, watching the, 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 the tape that's so difficult to watch of, of, of George Floyd's murder, is, is how a trust is broken in that moment. That there's a, that there's a government entity that in, in the deepest, most significant way is violating the public trust. And and what is and you and I have seen many flavors of this, where the public trust gets 
violated in some way and it, and it manifests itself in different outcomes. But what do you think about this and kind of this lens of, of, of citizens' trust in government and looking at the issue here through that lens right now? Oh, no, I, I, I think that that's a super important lens, but it's also then one that can't help itself. It be, can't be exposed to history. And, you know, the history of the, of the U.S. government when it comes to issues of race, race relations is one that would actually discourage, frankly, um, uh, African-Americans to trust the government. I mean, the government fundamental within the constitution uh, had you know, protection for slavery and slaveholders. The Supreme Court you know, in the Dred Scott decision uh, held up the right to ownership. So in trust in government, it's part of, in, in essence, it's, it's part of a privilege uh, that certain races have within, um, and certain people have within the United States to, to assume a trust in government. It's one that frankly hasn't been fully developed for everyone yet in this country. It's actually part of the experiment and part of the evolution. Yeah, I mean, I've, I mean, there are, there are many more intelligent scholars than me on, on talking about this tension that, that is, you know, that's within the fabric of, of America and this country and its history. And that tension is, in many ways, you can look at the country through the lens of, of, of how it's built on oppression of, of Native Americans, on, on, on slavery being uh, uh, a huge part of, of, of its early fabric. And then you balance that tension against like the Statue of Liberty and the symbol that this is a, 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 a country of, of unlimited potential and equal protection and a place that, that wants diversity as part of how it's going to, to flourish. Um, and I think you see that play that microcosm playing out over the past few days where you you watch what's going on or you experience what's going on and in the same 15 minute span you can feel a sense of despair of immense despair and immense hope um based on what you see of our acts of humanity but also you know insane acts of dishumanity and you you know it's just like we're constantly struggling with that and so in some ways Yes, I can understand the, you know, the inherent distrust that that the African American community has on with the government. But also, I also think that they want to see the government be better, right? It's like I've I've heard it over and over again that we we can do better, and 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 there's a, a recognition that that there are ways and, that we can get better. And I think and I think that is what's motivating. Uh, the 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 folks to come out onto the streets and and raise their hand and raise their voices and march together and speak up and say uh, you know that's the wonderful aspect of this experiment that's the wonderful aspect of this experiment it is the it is the optimism it is the uh, it is this experimentation it's this attempt to constantly try to perfect uh, this work that we do and that's the that's the inherent beauty of an evolvable document like the Constitution. 
yeah. um, that people in a different time could get it so wrong. And it's really our responsibility to constantly work on making it better. You know, the whole arc of history bends towards justice, um, but it doesn't bend itself. People bend it. It's bent by us. And um, you, know, you, you cite the Statue of Liberty there. Recently, someone was questioning whether the statement underneath the Statue of Liberty was was actually, you know, added to the Statue of Liberty or implied by the Statue of Liberty. And that's the fact that that, you know, that some of those things that we take as uh, progress and as evolution are, are frankly being questioned, constantly being questioned. And, and we need as as a society and members of it to continually engage and try to make this a better place. Yeah, and there are, you know, there's also kind of, I think, underlying this, the reality that for, for, for this country to work, for the society to function effectively, there are certain things you have to have in place, and law enforcement is one of them, right? You, 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 you have to have the ability to, to dial 911, you, you, you know, it's just... And so, so it has to, so we have, we can't like eliminate it. We have to figure out how to, how to find a better, yeah, but a betterness I, I, to it. I think part of it is we have to have a dialogue and a conversation in which we confront that history. I'm reading a book by Blackman called uh, Slavery by Another Name. And um, I, I would like to think I'm a reasonably aware uh, person, but, but reading the history of the post-Reconstruction South, and frankly, the use of the criminal justice system to re-enslave uh, thousands and thousands of African Americans, it makes you understand, you know, a historical thread that suggests that that trust is something that we haven't necessarily done enough to establish, not re-establish, I mean establish, period. <laughs> you know, create. And um, you see then, you know, incident after incident. Now, I, I, I worked for the Metropolitan Police Department. I came in when we were under a consent decree and I saw that through active engagement, through great leadership, people like Chuck Ramsey and, and Kathy Lanier, that that trust can actually be built. Those connections can actually be fostered. But you know, trust is earned in thimblefuls and lost in buckets. And what you saw in that instance with George Floyd was was not a bucket. You saw you saw a whole ocean of trust, um, you know, be thrown away. Yeah. Tell me about the consent decree. Well, and you know, this is a, a controversial issue about whether the federal government should be doing this or not. Uh, at the time, the federal government believed it was their place and role through the Justice Department to evaluate the performance of police departments and determine whether they were violating Americans, you know, national civil rights. And um, Metropolitan Police Department of District of Columbia actually had a very, very high rate of police involved shootings and had um, serious issues with uh, 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 police and community relations. And the Justice Department actually came in and placed a consent decree on, on the department. And the department then had to take affirmative actions. They had to report to a special monitor. They had to uh, demonstrate progress and, and uh, prove you know, the, the fact that they could 
frankly, um, take the reins back themselves and, and demonstrate that they were actually discharging their work in a way that guaranteed the fundamental civil rights of the citizens of the District of Columbia. And as part of that process, Chief Chuck Ramsey was brought in from Chicago and he started a 10 year process of completely rebuilding the department and focusing it around community policing, a strategy that was taken up by Kathy Lanier and continues under the current chief, Pete Newsham. Um, but, you know, Chief Ramsey did some really, really, really incredible and thoughtful things like making sure that every police recruit went to the Holocaust Memorial Museum and took a tour mm. of the Holocaust Memorial Museum. So they understood, they fundamentally understood what happens when the power of government is used against its people rather than in defense and support of all its people. And, uh, you know, it's hard not to go to the Holocaust Memorial Museum and, and have a different perspective. Um, it's, it's an entirely different message if you're joining a police force and you're told that this is part of your fundamental responsibility. And that's not to say that- That's an incredible story, by the way. The, yeah. You know, um, it, 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 it seems something that's very, it, it has a very high return on investment, if you will, in terms of impact to, you know, as part of your training. And it's kind of, feels like it's throwing a little bit of a traditional training out the, uh, you know, out and kind of coming up with some creative ways to, to make sure people understand the impact that authority has and how, if it's corrupted, can go so wrong. And that, right. and that people are susceptible to that. Obviously, they're susceptible to it when they are in places of authority. And, and we, right. see, we see many, many examples of it. Yeah, and I, I think... Um... Uh, I think uh, I think actually using the assets of of Washington D.C. in this this place where we assemble um, for good or for bad, fully curated or not, the history of the United States. Um, I, I'd have to say that um, if, if if this were an idea how to begin the process of reform, the Holocaust Memorial museum would certainly be on the list, but I would also say the African-American History Museum and start on that fourth basement, that start at the bottom and actually spend some time. I mean, I almost didn't get out of it the first time I was, um, I visited the museum where it talks about the history of race, the concept of race and where it comes from and why it exists uh, and, and how it was promoted and how it was used to justify enslavement and the continuation of enslavement well beyond the enlightenment when people realized it was, you know, uh, absolutely fundamentally not okay. And um, that, you know, everyone who is in a position of authority or power should be, should have to spend a day down there and just thinking about that and talking about it. It's hard. I mean, it's hard. it raises an interesting question in terms of beyond just recruits and orientation for police officers, broadening that out to, to education in general and children. And are, are we doing enough? And should we be rethinking how we educate children on tolerance and, uh, 
and 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 the impacts of racism and and history um, and history i mean i think there has been evidence that the curriculum around us history has evolved to try to soften the edges of the civil war and you know i i personally never thought i would see the day i mean i'm uh you know i come from the north right so i <laughs> i always was a little shocked by the 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 um the uh Civil War monument that 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 prominently featured the um, the uh, uh, rebels, right? I, I I was always a little surprised <laughs> by that. My you know my dad fought in World War II. My my mom grew up in um, war torn Copenhagen. You know there are no memorials to the quote unquote other side, right? This was um, this was a battle that was fought and won around you know, certain principles. And one of the key principles was uh, this argument that there was an institution that was fundamentally uh, wrong. And that institution was slavery. So I, I actually was quite shocked by the prominence of these displays. Um, and I never thought I would actually see the political energy mustered to, tear, to take them down. So what Mitchell Andrew did in Louisiana, what Governor Northam's doing in, um, uh, in Virginia, in Richmond, on Monument uh, Row, you know this this is astonishing to me, but it's it's only like the kind of symbolic first step to a much much broader discussion, which to your point has to start in schools, and I think it should it should, it should move right up into every level of the federal government. I think, you know, I think we try to do the, you know, the. Um, I, at the federal government, I, I know we both have, have gone through one or two hour long sessions about, you know, inclusiveness in the workplace. Um, but I, I think it, it probably needs to be much bigger than that. I think everyone should take a trip to the, um, uh, to the uh, uh, African American History Museum, to the Holocaust Memorial Museum, to, uh, uh, to the um, Civil Rights Museum. To the uh, yeah. um, the lynching museum. Um, you know, so I'm going to uh, I'm going to work in a movie quote before we uh, go to the break, uh, sure. and then Tia, because as you were talking and and you're talking about the education um, and and that the edges have been softened, I just thought of that that there's a scene in Goodwill Hunting where. Uh, where um, Matt Damon's character is talking to Robin Williams for the first time and looking at the books that he has on his shelf and you tell him he's reading the wrong books. Mm. And, and, and Robin Williams asks, what are the right books? And Will Hunting says, talks about Howard Zinn's um, A People's History of the United States, which is a book that tells the history of the United States from the perspective of the common people instead of the perspective of those who are in power. And, um, you know, maybe, maybe, maybe Will Hunting was uh, up to something. Maybe we're reading the wrong books, <laughs> you know, or maybe yeah. there need, we need to be thinking differently about that. Yeah. And I, 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 I want to be careful about saying right or wrong, but maybe we should read more books. Or different books. More books, yeah. And yeah. Um, and uh, I think um, I think we we all have an opportunity, frankly, uh, granted to us by by folks who are who are saying enough to try to gain a better understanding and then create 
what we always hope to do with this, um, with this experiment, this experiment in democracy and the government that supports it is to create a more perfect union. And all those words, more perfect than union, are actually wonderful words because they're inclusive, yes. they're expansive, they're optimistic. And um, yeah, I, I hope. So maybe adding, you're saying adding a perspective like Howard Zinn's to the curriculum, not replacing, but making sure that, uh, that we're giving people, our, our people, you know, our kids and as they grow up and get into civics classes, more data exactly. points to understand for some different yeah okay I'm, let's I'm um, let's take a break okay and when we come yeah. back what i want to do when we come back is talk a little bit about uh different experiences that you and i have had with citizens trusting government and see see if there's any lessons on. i mean obviously they'll be somewhat less serious than where we are today potentially but i want to kind of go into this question of of when the public trust is compromised and how the government has come back to that and sometimes gotten better from that. Okay. Um, and I will start the next part with a shameless plug for a nonprofit that I, I'm, I happen to be on the board of. Oh, okay. Go for it. Okay. Thanks, Dan. Thanks, Danny. Gov Actually is brought to you by the good folks at the FedScoop Radio Network. Be sure to check out what is happening on the forefront of government technology innovation at FedScoop as well as the most important issues facing cybersecurity professionals at CyberScoop. GovActually is also supported by the Boston Consulting Group and the Center for Public Impact. Uh, Danny, we're back. And as I promised, I'm going to make a shameless plug uh, for a nonprofit that uh, I have the, the distinct honor and pleasure of serving on the board of. It's called Generation Citizen. And Generation Citizen is a nonprofit that has developed and sponsors active civics classes in high schools, which actually teach kids and their, well, teach the teachers and the kids to work together. Um, I should say young adults to work together to engage in, in our civic experiment. Um, like of actually, there is no political perspective. The only, the only perspective is that our country gets better when people work on it, that it's a project and every project gets done better and faster if people are actually pulling their fair share. And this teaches young adults um, through work in their classroom to uh, uh, what, what, what engagement looks like and, and how you can actually participate. And it's, it's, uh, it's very cool. It's you know, got like every small nonprofit, it's got all its great challenges. Um, it has really been struggling with these issues uh, uh, as well. And our focus has been, you know, primarily on schools that don't have access to as much uh, in the way of resources so that, you know, the voices that aren't as traditionally heard can actually get a leg up and get some lead time so that they can actually speak up and, and make a difference. So it's, it's a cool project. It sounds amazing. I'm glad, I'm glad I raised the, the question of kind of education beyond police cadets and recruits because I didn't know about this and um, I'm, I'm always impressed by by the stuff that you get into it's, it's always inspiring you know it's like it's nice of you to say I, it, I I wonder if I'm just like into too much stuff right so I worry about but you able to do it well but you have you know you and I have talked about this that uh, 
that you you have mentored me over the years to kind of follow a true north when the when when I'm under the gun on things or feel I'm under the gun on things and uh, and and I, I always think you have a good true north. So this type of of activity, the activities that you get in to and spend your time on are um, are, are very cool and, and and inspiring. So I thought I'd. Give you a compliment. I don't often compliment. No, no, like this that. is, I'm going to, I'm glad I'm recording. Oh, wait, am I recording? Just kidding. <laughs> um, <laughs> so, uh, yeah, I've got to, maybe you can, maybe you can edit it out later when you yeah. have second thoughts. Um, so now, but, I'm gonna uh, take, now I'm going to take the risk of, of, uh, of giving an example of kind of a, a moment where I, where, you, you know, citizens trust, which was a much less serious moment, but, um, by the way, and, and Danny, I, I love any minute you're taking a risk. I just, I yeah. love watching that. I love watching it. It's great. Risk it, is maybe, maybe too, too big a word. Um, and this is where I think I made a mistake, potentially. It didn't go over well. So when I, you know, told this story before, I went to the IRS in the middle of a scandal where, where, they, where, you know, where there was this implication that the IRS had, had violated the trust by... Um, by at the time there being an allegation that it was more strictly scrutinizing conservative groups for tax exempt status and, you know, the democratic administration and the implication that the IRS was quote unquote targeting conservative groups for, uh, for, for more enforcement or deeper scrutiny. That's a violation because the IRS is supposed to be nonpartisan and, and unbiased. And so that allegation led to protests and op-eds and, and, and the organization was really kind of suffering. And, and one of the things I did when I, get, when I got there to try to rebuild the trust was, was in thinking that, the, that we had violated a first principle, I created a mandatory training program for all IRS employees that, that we called Getting Back to Basics. And like having everyone remind themselves of some of these uh, elements of, of what we signed up to do when we first became a revenue agent or first joined the IRS. It didn't go over that well. You know, I mean, I think, I think, I think people felt like it was an, I, I, and this is an important lesson, I think. There, you know, I think the, the, the sense, this organization has 90,000 people and there were only a few people that, you know, that kind of potentially misstepped. And the notion that all 90,000 people now have to take this training felt like, you know, that, that it was like we're all being thrown in the same bucket and it's a little bit too much of a, you know, of a, of a, of a swipe at the organization as a whole. And so, you know, I learned from that and learned that, that sometimes you have to do things a little bit more nuanced. Um, but it did, there was this kind of sense that we need to get back to the basics of our, of our training as, a, as an institution. And I feel that a lot of what I'm hearing, like when, for example, I think uh, Vice President Biden, as he's you know, running for president and is the Democratic nominee or the presumptive nominee, has come out with some policy proposals around training and how to de-escalate situations. And I'm assuming that's gonna be for all police, not just those that, that are found to have um, been involved in, 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 in issues of police brutality. So any thoughts about this like question of like everybody getting training versus you know targeted training? I, I, I don't see any harm in everyone being exposed to new ideas and, and 
building tools and toolkits and language. Um, I, you know, there are, there's the risk that these things become rote, you know, they become mandatory and they become rote and they become, you know, I've, I've sat through some pretty terrible mandatory training. Yeah. Um, but you know, maybe part of the experience many of us have garnered through, um, the pandemic and the work from home is an improved, you know, set of technical abilities around Zooms and, you know, these kind of virtual discussions that might actually create a platform for improving that, that kind of dialogue. Perhaps there is room or space for a national dialogue on national networks or national platforms um, that isn't, you know, just the wonderful, say, you know, music at home together kind of thing, but actually a, a, a discussion about these issues at home together kind of thing. Yeah. And then, I, and, then I, and then, if you're in a position of clear public trust where, where you have the ability to deny someone their freedom, you have the ability to deny someone their, you know, suspend their rights or perhaps even take their life, then I would say there is no end to the, the amount of training that you should continuously have. Yes. Am I, my wife has uh, is a pediatric nurse practitioner. She has to recertify repeatedly for for the work that she does. Um, I think that people in the, those positions of authority and power, and I would go straight up to the people who are commanding, you know, uh, uh, you know, national guard platoons, or, or 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 have the authority over many, many, many people who who stand in that position. They should also have some curriculum that they're demonstrated that they've actually, you know, gained awareness of, you know? You know, you raise a really important point around that, 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 that makes me think about the fact that when you have trust in government breakdowns, there are, there are times where it just, there can be a trust in government breakdown, which has a, which has less impact or more impact. And what I mean by that is, the IRS example is that the reason why the IRS trust is so important is in and around how the tax code is enforced. And if there's an unfair enforcement of the code, that hits people on a gut level versus other types of trust violations, right? So for example, let's use a different example. And like, let's use air traffic control. If you found out that an air traffic controller um, did something like, you know, I don't know, stole money or something, you'd be like, well, that's unfortunate. That's a, you know, a public employee and they shouldn't be stealing. Let's say they stole taxpayer money or they use their charge card inappropriately. You'd be upset, but you know, but then in the same example, what if there was, you found out about an air traffic controller who was cutting corners or was drunk or who was not following appropriate safety because of some selfish reason, that's a violation that's right at the center and the core of what they've signed up to do, where they have people's lives um, in their hands. The closer you get to the bullseye of that public mission and that violation, the more damage is done and the more uh, problems we have. So for example, I'm going to use a real example. You know, on the day we're taping this podcast, last night, this video went viral of, of in Buffalo, 
the police knocking down a 75 year old man, which was bad enough, but then he's laying bleeding on, on the street and, and police are walking by him rather than tending to him. And, you know, police are first responders intended to, you know, the reality is, is that you expect them to, to, uh, to, to, to immediately go to someone who's injured and figure out a way to get that person the medical care they need. So that is much, hits you much deeper on a gut level of a violation versus if that same police officer was caught up in some other, you know, scandal that related to them, like, you know, buying big screen TVs at, a, at an unfair discount or something like that. You know, it's like, it's core to, to why we, tr why we want to trust them. And something you said about about uh, your wife uh, kind of made me think in those terms. And I I know many 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 wonderful dedicated committed um, police officers, and I Absolutely. know many 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 police officers who would would have stopped and would have given them the shirt off the back to you know would have taken them to the hospital. This this isn't per se the police officer. This is this is the leadership of the police officers, right? You know yeah. this that it's not that the, the the problems you found in the agencies were very seldom because there were bad people in the agencies. There were bad there was bad leadership. There was there's an unwillingness to take the risks or take the chances, or sometimes those risks or chances are blocked by institutions um, that 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 have the wrong goals that have the that are bad leaders, you know, and in the, you know, the instance of Minneapolis, you had the chief of police who I, I admire as a leader. He sued the city over the racist practices of the police department he is now leading. And he has been fighting another institution in that instance. It happens to be the police union who is fighting reforms or sort of fighting accountability. And so I think that, you know, um, I think we got to be careful about targeting those individuals who are growing up or being taught or being rewarded or incentivized in a system that is is poorly led now that having been said i, I can't understand the lack of human humanity that has someone who's sworn to protect and serve walk past someone who's, who's bleeding and, and clearly needs help yeah and i and as i mentioned earlier that this moment in time and and what we're seeing has this tension of you know you could watch that video and have a complete sense of despair around, have we lost our compass um, as a nation? And then you could see another video come in where you see police officers taking a knee in solidarity uh, with protesters, um, you know, bonding with, with, with the protesters, um, and you see other elements of understanding that's starting to emerge uh, across the country. Um, you see diversity amongst the crowds of people that are protesting uh, and, and joining uh, Black Lives Matters uh, events, activities, and movements. And you feel a sense of, of optimism at that point. So, so it is- and I, I just it, think that that optimism needs to be tempered though with a recognition that it's not going to be fixed by next Wednesday. You know, it's no. not, no. everyone's going to be like, oh, it's okay. Like this officer took a knee with us. That's great. So the police is actually cool. 
um, it, it, it's going to require wading, not like knee deep, not chest deep, but like 10 feet down into laws and policies and, and structures and institutions and really asking ourselves, you know, why is it okay that 17% of a particular uh, demography has a criminal record? What have we done to criminalize, frankly, you know, certain people's lives? What have we done to create aspects of our society that, that frankly make it, you know, illegal to pass through them? And yeah, I mean, and there, there, there are policies, laws that we need to revisit, but also I think as we were discussing earlier, organizational dynamics that need to be restudied, leadership, training, and going back to my earlier point, greater recognition of where the violations in trust are going to have larger exponential impacts on the ability of the organization to carry out its mission, not to mention the, the potential substantive uh, badness that, that and, in, and bad societal impacts or individual impacts it might have on people and safety. But if you're working in an organization, any public sector organization, part of the training should be for you to have awareness of where that bullseye is of what's expected of you and where the worst case trust violations exist. And that culturally within that organization, there should be better awareness, both vertically and horizontally throughout the organization that these are the types of things that can never happen because this is the most damaging to, to, to our mission and therefore to citizens' trust in our mission and therefore to the impact that we can have and what we signed up to do. And as you go across different public sector entities, can people automatically point out what that bullseye is and have, have alignment across the organization that everybody knows that this is what we should protect. And if we see it threatened, we have to say something or do something. You know, there's a really interesting question. Again, I don't know if I'm smart enough to really tackle it around the other officers that witnessed the George Floyd murder and what, what creates an environment and a culture and an organization that, 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 that makes them not intervene in that situation. And I just think not only do we, do we want to teach better humanity to people as they're, as they're growing up, but also within our organizations, we want to incentivize a more of like a, a, a risk flag that pops up that says, wait a minute, this is really, really bad. And I might need to do something here. Danny, I mean, this has been, this has been a sub theme of all our conversations is how do you build communication and connection across all parts of the organization so that problems can be identified as quickly as possible so they don't metastasize into crises, right? right. And we, we, this isn't like George Floyd wasn't like, oh, wow, I, you know, that's new. You know, that, that's, <laughs> that's, a, that's a message that's been sent over and over and over again. And the, the simple fact is that there's been, you know, an organizational, an institutional, a national unwillingness to kind of confront those challenges. In fact, we've seen, we've seen some pulling back from that discussion and say, well, that's not the role of the federal government. And so that's part of the, this 200 plus year debate about, is it a 
local responsibility? Is it a state responsibility or federal responsibility? In the case of the District of Columbia and the consent decree we had in the DOJ, that was a federal risk. That was a view that that was a federal responsibility that I, I, I personally believe changed our local work for the better. But you know, this stand on the side with hands in pockets or 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 fear of taking action. You know, this was a this was a theme underlying the GSA. You know, this you know there are a lot of people like we're at this crazy party in Las Vegas. It is bananas. Like I've never seen anything like this, but all my bosses are doing it, so it looks okay. Yeah. And, and someone then had the guts to reach out to an inspector general. They blew a whistle and talked to inspector general who had the independence and the authority to conduct an investigation. And it took a long time, but eventually the recognition was, you know, the accountability was, was forced and the recognition came that, you know, that we had the GSA and, and leadership of that organization had drifted off the center line and it needed to be brought back in. And yeah. um, these tools, you know, we talked, one of our earliest podcasts was about the dissent channel at the State Department. Yep. What an amazing and incredible and valuable institution where you have the ability for people at the front lines to say, we disagree with the leadership of this organization. And that dissent should be valued and protected and celebrated because that dissent is the, is the expression of the First Amendment right to speak up and raise your voice and say that we can do better. Yep. All right, I have a parting thought. Okay. So I, I, I was at some type of event and the, um, everyone at the event, some kind of training or conference or something, and everyone had to kind of like make a, make a prediction for the future. Um, and, uh, and in particular, an optimistic prediction for the future. And my prediction, which, which I've been thinking about for a while because I have not, it, it's, it felt like it, like it was way off and was never gonna come true, was that social media, while in its infancy feels like it's net negative, a lot of toxicity, a lot of, um, you know, the worst parts of people come out in it, you know, this whole narrative. My, my optimistic prediction for the future that, that it would turn a corner and would be a, um, an avenue for, for good, for, for sharing stories, for connecting people globally, and for creating transparency around things that, that people would run to, to help when a wrong was being occurred. And it strikes me that one potential positive that I see emerging is that there is, with all these videos going viral, greater transparency on wrongs that are occurring that, that have for many, many years been non-reported or non-believed. And so I think one of the manifestations or one of the, the outcome of this activity is not just the George Floyd death being caught on camera, or many of the others, um, but also all the, the protests and the activities that are being caught on camera and are now gonna be scrutinized and evaluated for how, how we de-escalate situations, how we deal with peaceful protests, 
how we understand how protests go from peaceful to uh, to violent, what what instigates that. Um, so it seems to me that there is some benefit to this transparency and being part of the change that needs to happen. So that's my parting shot. Uh, I I um. I hope that's the case. I mean, I do think that there's evidence in this instance where the the omnipresence and availability of um, of recording devices allow uh, broader populations and and broad, broader perspectives of values to you know see situations and 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 comment on them and react to them. They don't. It's harder to bury something in you know deep in a community where there's a, an unwillingness to confront maybe broader issues. So I think that that's beneficial. I'm, you know, I, I, it's a whole other conversation, but I'm worried about deep fakes. I'm worried about, you know, editing, you know, I'm worried about. Oh, I know. I know. Yes. I think I, it's I, mystic, uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. No, it's yeah. good. I think, I think you're right. But I also think like everything, it's going to be complicated. Um, and I, I frankly think that, uh, you know, in the midst of the pandemic, with this um, this increased awareness and discussion of of deeply held and deeply um, deeply structural and institutional weaknesses of our, our system, perhaps my optimism will be uh, perhaps we will rise as our country has tried to in every instance to the challenge and continue to work on bending the arc. In the right direction. That that's got to be my optimism. I, I would understand why others don't share it, but I think that that's what keeps me personally motivated to keep coming back and and doing the work that I'm doing and, and working with people like you and and others. So that's my parting hope. Well, Dan, thank you for for having this conversation today, and um, uh, again, I I hope people listen. If, they have feedback. I hope they reach out to us. Yeah. I think we both want to learn and, and create a broader dialogue, um, yeah. as I said at the start, to figure out how we can be better allies uh, in this uh, in this effort. Yeah, and I'll, I'll end where I started with a disclaimer and saying, you know, I think we're just coming to this with our best intention and our best efforts, but that doesn't mean we haven't gotten some part of it horribly wrong. So I, yeah. I would love to know. I'd love to know where I can learn more and where I should uh, double click and, and dig deeper because I think, you know, I, I think that people are, are perfectible. Um, I think that people can learn. And I think that the way we make ourselves better and our country a better place is by doing it together. So thank you, Danny. I, I enjoy doing this Amen. with you. Amen. Thanks, right. Dan. Till the next Be time. Well. You too. Thanks for listening to GovActually. We'd love to hear from you. You can tweet at us at GovActuallyPod, or you can write to Danny at Danny at GovActually.com, or to me at Dan at GovActually.com. And if you haven't already, subscribe to GovActually Podcast on iTunes and write a review. That's how we get pushed up further and more people can hear about us. Thanks again.